Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, 10 questions asked the Lordship Salvationist. And uh, probably that allots to about three minutes per question, all right? But this is all based on work I've done in my, on my doctoral dissertation, which been available for a number of years. I wanted to talk today more on a pastoral note about how do you talk to somebody who's in that position. And we realize that there are those who are strongly entrenched in the position, and you may not, may not feel you know, very confident in dealing with them. You may. It depends on your theological uh, level of confidence. And then there are, there are those who may use some of the language, but they're not at all entrenched in it. Uh, they, they just grew up hearing that, and they use that. There are some who think that they're saying the right things, but you really find out that they're inconsistent. It's a big mushy middle that I call it. And these are the ones I think that are right for us to come in with some questions that make them wonder, question their beliefs and their consistency, their beliefs. And uh, so that's the purpose of what we're doing here. And I'll say at the very end, but I want to I want to bracket the whole discussion that that with Second uh, Timothy two twenty four, the attitude in which we always deal with folks who disagree. Paul tells Timothy, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. So with an attitude of gentleness and graciousness, we, we want to talk to people. One good way to, to talk to people about this issue is to ask them certain questions, draw the answers out of them, and eventually I think we'll We'll discover their inconsistencies, and they'll see it themselves. So let's start with the definition of lordship salvation. Um, lordship salvation, just a simple definition, would be it's uh, the belief that teaches uh, that a person is saved eternally by believing in Jesus Christ as Savior and submitting to him as Lord. Uh, but it's, it's all there. Believing in him as Savior and submitting to him as Lord. Now, their definition of believing usually includes submission, commitment, surrender, obedience, even. And then there are a lot of corollaries that go along with their definition, like repentance is something that uh, has to be a change of life, show that you've truly believed. You have to persevere in good works and commitment so that you, you prove, again, evidence by your good works that you've believed. Uh, they like to talk about a costly grace that I think means that uh, the grace that has saved us now needs to be, we need to show ourselves worthy of it by how we live our lives. They talk about the continuing demands we would call demands of discipleship. They would also, but they define them not as demands uh, for following Christ subsequent to salvation, but demands required to become a Christian. So there's a lot of baggage involved in their definition when we say that the Lordship of Salvation believes that a person must Believe in Jesus as Savior and submit to him as Lord. We would say believe in him, but their word belief has all these corollaries and all this baggage attached to it. So let's look at some of the questions that we would ask them. One of the questions we could ask them is, um, how do you know when you've really believed? How do you know when you've really believed? In other words, since they believe that there is a false faith, and then there is a true saving faith. How do we distinguish between the two? 
And if faith involves submission and commitment and surrender, how do you know when you've done that enough? Uh, A person can always submit more or commit more and obey more. So that's kind of what the question is going for. And what we would say is the biblical definition of faith is being persuaded that something is true. We can't support from the Bible, and I think in any way, that uh, faith involves submission. It essentially is a passive word. It's coming to Christ with an empty hand, offering nothing and receiving everything. We would also say that it's not really the quality of faith at all or the kind of faith, but it's the object of faith. Jesus taught that the smallest amount of faith and the right object can move mountains. So it's the object of faith that saves us. A weak faith and a a healthy boat will save you, but a strong faith and a leaky boat will drown you. So it's not the um, amount of faith, the quality of faith, it's the object of faith that the scriptures point to. They like to talk about the right kind of faith. There's false faith, there's saving faith, there's true faith, there's genuine faith. They always want to qualify it, but the Bible doesn't qualify the word faith. And uh, what that leads to is an endless introspection. Did I believe in the right way? And how do we ever answer that question? It becomes a very subjective thing. It fluctuates with our feelings and our experiences. And, of course, can we really know for sure that you've believed and therefore know for sure that you're, you have eternal life? And assurance is a big issue with lordship teaching, of course. In an honest lordship person, and admit that they don't really have assurance of salvation. So the first question is, how do you know when you've really believed? Another question we might ask them is, how do you know when you've thoroughly repented? Because repentance is always a very important part of... Um, of their gospel presentation. We have to really be sorry for sin and really have to change our conduct. And, uh, of course, um, the questions are going to be, how do you know when you thoroughly repented? But when we explore the idea of repentance, uh, the Greek word for repentance, I think, is significant. Ultimately, the word repentance is defined in its context, but the Greek word is made up of two words. It means after thought or change of mind. And I think it speaks to um, the change of mind, which is also used interchangeably with the heart in the Bible, or that interchange, the change of heart, I like, to, I like to say. The Greek translation of the Old Testament word, the Old Testament word for turning is, is the word shub in the Hebrew, and the Greek translation of that never translates that uh, with the word metanoia. It always, trans, not always, but it usually translates it with the word epistrepo in the New Testament. The word epistrepo is... Um, uh, means to turn, but it is not translated repentance ever. So we have a strong um, la- argument from the language. That's kind of a detailed technical argument that comes out more in, in the book. There's a separate Greek word for regret because the Lordship Salvation people say that repentance is we have to you have to be sorry. Somebody told me the other day that they heard the weirdest um, invitation ever. They told me this yesterday that the pastor said, you have to come crying down the aisle. There have to be tears when you walk down that aisle if you really want to be saved. Well, there is a Greek word for that kind of tears. It's, it's metamelamai. It's used in 2 Corinthians 7, but it says that that doesn't save you. <laughs> that kind of sorrow doesn't necessarily save you. You can be sorry about your sins and not be saved. So it's, it's not sorrow that's essential to the meaning of the word repentance. Uh, John the Baptist told the Pharisees, now go and bear fruit worthy of repentance in Luke chapter 3, is it? And uh, that tells us that the fruit must be separate from the root, that there's the inner change, the repentance, and then there's the fruit of repentance, which is the works that we do. 
Now, lordship wants to glob it all together and say that uh, repentance means that you're actively actively changed your conduct. But we can point out to him a verse like Luke three eight, Matthew three eight, both unknown sins. Uh, here's a big problem for the lordship salvation person. They say you have to repent of all your sins. And then the question for me is, well, boy, can I think of all my sins? Especially when the Bible talks about sins of commission. Those are kind of easy. What about the sins of omission? You know what a sin of omission is, right? One little boy's definition was a sin of omission was a sin I thought about doing, but I forgot to do. You got your, your sins of commission, your sins of omission, and then your unintentional sin. I think if God were to open our eyes, we'd all be much more sinful than we realize. And then we get into the absurd scenario of not wanting to talk to somebody about their sins because they, if they're repenting of all their known sins, well, then we don't, we don't want to try to get them to explore to find out what other sins they might have. It, it's, an, it's an absurd scenario. It would be best to keep people ignorant of their sins when sharing the gospel. Final repentance would be very difficult to measure. How do we know when we've really repented? Is it the change of heart? Is it the change in the conduct? Is it when I've made restitution? How do I know that I will continue in that train, uh, that I won't repeat that sin? One man uh, wrote me with his testimony, which the, the church he was going to just emphasized this kind of doctrine and, and the necessity of repentance from all sins to the point where he wanted to be, he was so introspective, he wanted to be so thoroughly convinced he was repentant of everything, he sold his home and used all of his money to pay people back he thought he had wronged in life, just to be sure that he was totally repentant. So he, he gave up all of his equity and all of his, all of his home until he found a free grace church. At least became spiritually rich, I hope. Then there is a view, of course, that, that teaches that repentance doesn't have anything to do with salvation at all, that it's harmony with God, and uh, it separates it from the idea of salvation. Either way you argue, these are good ways to cast out upon their insistence that repentance means turning from every sin, being sorry for sin, and um, changing your conduct. Third question we could ask him is, how do you know when you're completely committed to Christ's lordship? Because um, how, the question is really, how much commitment is enough? How do we know when we really have made that full commitment? Of course, there are various levels of commitment. We might point out. Some people are very committed. Uh, I think we're all committed to some degree, all of us in here. But I think that we would recognize different levels of commitment. Your experience and my experience is that every day God exposes new areas in our lives that need to be committed. So how do we nail this down to the point where we know we're committed enough to be saved? That's a question we could pose to them. And the fact is that the Bible talks about ongoing commitments that are necessary. These are called the commitments of discipleship. But by, by their very nature and description, they're ongoing. Um, follow me. That's not an event. That's a process. And that's Jesus' demand for discipleship. Abide in my word. That's not an event. That's a process. Take up your cross. Daily. So the, the demands of discipleship that Lordship Salvation likes to use for salvation are, are a process. They're a lifetime process. Ongoing commitments are demanded. So you would ask, how do we know when we fulfilled these, when I have to take up my cross daily? How would I ever know that I'm saved? And there's also the argument from the unbeliever's limited understanding. That is, an unbeliever can't be expected to know what commitments he needs to make to God. He's an unbeliever, right? Perhaps if he's from a Christian background, he would have some knowledge. But I wonder if a pagan Roman jailer 
in the middle of the night has thought this through about what God expects from him for his life and his money and his family and his career and all these things. No, he just wanted to be saved. And then we can bring up the issue of confusing salvation or actually justification with discipleship. Salvation as an instantaneous event. We talk about the doctrine of justification where we're declared righteous and discipleship as a lifetime process, which theologically we would call sanctification. Are we confusing the two? It's a very important distinction in the Bible. Of course, they're related, uh, but they're always distinct. So the question is, how do we know when we're fully committed? If things are an ongoing process and the demands that Christ makes of us are ongoing. Another question we could pose, how can you expect an unbeliever to make decisions that reflect spiritual maturity and an understanding of God's will? We alluded to that just about the jailer. Um, since an unbeliever is dead in sin and doesn't know God, how do we expect him to know what God expects of his life? So we could, uh, we could talk to them, about, to them about the unbeliever's sinful state. What, what do you expect someone who's, let's, let's take it out of American culture to a place where they probably have never heard the gospel before, and uh, you've just been able to explain the gospel to them. How, how do they know what God expects of their life so that they can make these deeply spiritual decisions that believers are expected to make in order to be saved? We could point them to Titus chapter 2, where it talks about the grace that, grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us. See, Lordship Salvation is trying to get the cart before the horse, that we make these commitments and then we get saved. But the Bible says the grace of God is understood, and then it teaches us about denying ungodliness and living godly in this world. An unbeliever is not called to obey God's commands. An unbeliever is called to obey, perhaps, the command to believe, or he's called to believe. And that's the only call I see for an unbeliever. And again, we distinguish between, theologically, justification and sanctification, realizing that they... They work together, or they, uh, but they remain distinct. A person is justified through faith alone, but sanctified by fulfilling the ethical demands, that, uh, the many ethical demands of the scriptures. Here's a good question to ask somebody. Have you remained completely committed to Christ's lordship? I think that's a, that would be a very effective one. Um, the truth is, is that you and I know that the reality is that Christians sin. So how can anybody ever know for sure he's saved if, if we all have to deal with this reality of sin in our life? Uh, none of us probably that we're talking with believe in uh, sinless perfection. So at what point then is a person judged to be not saved because of sin in their life? The fact is that Christians can and do sin, and it always shows when they sin a less than full commitment to Jesus Christ. The reality and power of sin and Satan Let's not close our eyes to what Satan is trying to do and the power of sin that is in us and the struggle that Paul had in Romans chapter 7. Uh, anybody who's been a pastor or in the ministry knows that Christians are capable of doing anything. Christians are capable of doing anything. And uh, Satan is prowling around the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And sometimes he is able to trip people up quite a bit. Believers. And so, again, we come back to this issue of assurance. If there's sin in our lives, there's an incomplete commitment. If there's an incomplete commitment, how can we know for sure that we're saved? Since my salvation depends on being fully committed to Christ in this view. Here's a good question also. And this is one I've always wanted to see answered. Which sins disqualify a person as a true believer anyway? 
Of course, in, in the Lordship Salvation view, if a person is living in sin or if a person sins, it shows that they never really believed, so they're not saved. But which sins is that? Are those? Uh, the sins of murder, adultery, homosexuality, we probably, you know, they'd probably make a strong argument for some of those, but what about anger? Covetousness? Pride? All right. Uh, when I read the lists of sins in Romans and, you know, some of these other catalogs of sins in the scriptures, you know, they always, Paul seems to purposely throw in disobedience to parents and stuff like that, just to make sure none of us are thinking we're doing all right when we see that list. So there's several ways to think about Christians who sin. This was my workshop yesterday. We said it's not possible that they lost their salvation, and we don't want to say that it proves that they never really believed because sins can be a reality in the Christian life. But we gave other possibilities that are consistent with the grace gospel, that they're immature, never really grew, that they're, they're struggling with some kind of sinfulness in their life, that they've just chosen to live worldly uh, as a carnal Christian. So there are other categories to put people in who call themselves Christians, and yet we see sin in their life. I don't find a biblical gradation of sins. I, I, I do believe some are worse than others, but in the end, they all fall short of the glory of God. And uh, for us to say one sin is worthy of proving that we're not saved as opposed to another, I think is ar almost arbitrary or just arbitrary. And, of course, there's ways of interpreting the passages as a speak of not inheriting, and this is where 1 Corinthians 6 Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians, um, about you know those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are two good ways of interpreting those passages that are consistent with the grace message. Either Paul is telling, I think he's always telling believers, he's either telling them, don't live like the people who do these things, who are not going to enter heaven, or he's saying, if you do these things, you won't inherit the richness and rewards of heaven. Uh, you can figure out which one you believe. Uh, I've I, I been going back and forth on it because uh, some of the good work that's been done here. But we have views that are consistent. We don't have to say, well, if you do these things, you're not going to heaven. There's no definitive list of disqualifying sins in the Bible. There are lists of sins, but no lists of sins are identical, are they? And I can't find one that's definitive. Uh, they're descriptive lists, but they're not prescriptive lists. There's no list that says if you do these things, uh, you're not saved. And even in the Galatians and 1 Corinthians passages, they're not identical. I would like somebody on the Lordship Salvation side to give me the definitive list of sins that prove I'm not a Christian. Because I think I could put them on eBay and make a lot of money. There's a lot of people, a lot of people saved and unsaved or think they're saved and worried about being saved that would really buy that list. There are, of course, biblical examples of sinning believers. King David and son Solomon and, um, and Peter. We know that believers can sin. We have an unrealistic view of a believer's capacity to sin sometimes. Uh, I think we, we already said this. We know that believers are capable of doing anything. It's a subjective judgment. How much sin does it take to disprove that I'm a believer? Not just what kind of sin, but how much of it. It's a subjective judgment. Who's going to make that decision? Who's going to make that judgment? You see how Lordship Salvation so easily leads into legalism, as it often and always will if it's followed consistently. And you know, there's an inconsistent, inconsistency with the Bible teaching about divine and church discipline. You follow what I'm saying? Why, why does God have to discipline his children if they're not really his children? If sin proves they're not his children, then why do we have Hebrews chapter 12 talking about discipline? And if sin proves that they're not his children, why do we have uh, Matthew 18 telling us how to discipline someone? 
it's, it's superfluous. So we ought to just be witnessing to them, right? But we have these uh, very detailed passages talking about how God deals with his children so that they will not run wild and how the church ought to deal with his children so that they do not run wild, just like you and I deal with our children so that they don't run wild. It's not a sign of God's uh, rejection. It's a sign of God's love. He embraces us and tries to correct us, lead us to holiness. And that's where that's the whole purpose of divine and church discipline. So there's no room for that in a lordship type of system. Seventh question we would ask, if salvation depends on your perseverance and faithfulness and good works, how can you know for sure that you're saved? In other words, those who are truly saved will persevere in faith, persevere in good works until they die. Traditional doctrine of perseverance. And to that we would say, well, you know what? Our salvation depends on Christ's faithfulness, not ours. That's what it's all about when Jesus said it is finished. And he became the supreme sacrifice in our place. Salvation isn't by works anyway. See, that's just backloading the gospel. We're saying, well, you're, you're saved by grace, not by works, but it's implying that now we're kept saved by what we do in our performance record. And so it's just backloading the gospel. Um, there are, the, again, the reality of threats to a believer's walk. Yes, we're to persevere, but, you know, Satan is throwing darts at us and uh, temptations at us, and there's the weakness of the flesh, all of which can be overcome by the power of God's Spirit, but, you know, not all of us do that consistently. There are biblical examples of believers dying in sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, where Paul talks about those in Corinth abusing the Lord's Supper, and because of this he says some of you are sick and some of you have even fallen asleep or died. I think the Bible has a teaching of the sin unto death, where those who persist in a certain sin will actually physically die. So there are those who are believers who evidently do not persist or persevere to the end of their life in faith and good works. And you know what? We really don't have much good news to share if we have to tell somebody, here's how to be saved, but we, don't, we won't really know until you die. To me, that just takes the message out. And I would challenge a Lordship Salvation person, what kind of news are you sharing with someone if you're telling them, if you're telling them, well, believe this, and then we'll, we'll just hope for the best. Call me from your deathbed. And we'll rejoice together if you're faithful. You can finally give your testimony at church from your deathbed. Lordship salvation is also open to this question. Where is there room to grow in the Christian life? You see, what we're saying is if salvation depends on faith, and faith means obedience and full commitment surrender, well, when I'm saved, I've done it all. It's a package deal. And if, if, if it's all a work of God, that's salvation, even if they want to say it that way, then what's left for me to do? And yet the scriptures talk, about the believer's responsibility to grow. That's the many, many, many ethical demands, commands, exhortations, admonitions in the Bible about our obligation to obey. That would be superfluous if it's, if it's all a package deal, if I've already fully surrendered and committed. Sanctification is not inevitable in the Christian life. Ultimate sanctification, of course, is, but progressive sanctification is not inevitable in the Christian life. It depends on our cooperation with the Spirit of God and our faithfulness and obedience to his commands, our walking in the power of the Spirit. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is needed. The believer needs to respond uh, to the Holy Spirit, rely upon his power for victory. Why would Paul teach that if, if we are saved and at the moment of salvation we are given all the faith, that uh, faith as a gift of God is fully equips us to obey and 
and et cetera, et cetera. Again, why does Paul so much teach that the Holy Spirit is needed, his power, and to walk with him? And there are biblical, biblical examples of stunted growth, as you know. Uh, there's growth that's been aborted, like in the parable of the soils, the soils that didn't quite mature to fruit, I mean, the, the seed that didn't quite mature to fruitfulness because of the cares of this world or because of the tests of this life. There's the um, stunted growth that comes from neglected growth in Hebrews chapter 5. You should be teachers by now, but I, I can't feed you meat. I have to feed you the milk uh, of the word. There's um, the stunted growth caused by sinfulness, 1 Corinthians 3, the carnal Christians there in verses 1 through 3. You're just babes in Christ. So there are biblical examples of stunted growth, and we don't necessarily have the assurance that they will go on and persevere to the end. Here's a good question, too, that they're open, they open themselves up to. Did the Apostle John then preach a false gospel? And, it, and the, the questioning goes like this. John clearly says only belief as the condition in his gospel. We know that about 98 times in reference to salvation, he uses that word belief. Two-thirds of the time the word is used in reference to salvation in the New Testament is in the Gospel of John. We also know that John has stated his purpose in chapter 20, verse 31, that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing have life in his name. John is the only book that does us the, uh, the favor of saying this book was written so that you can have eternal life and know how to have eternal life. And so with that, uh, with that kind of clear purpose statement, we say, well, how then did John present the gospel? And what we run into is that when we understand his unique purpose, that he has a, a condition for salvation of belief, belief, <clears throat> belief. It's also important to mention when we talk about John what he doesn't mention as conditions of salvation. We do not find surrender or commit or obey in order to be saved. In fact, when we do a study of the gospel of John, <laughs> How many times does the word repent pop up in John? Zero. Zero. What John is saying, there's a, there's a simple condition for salvation. That condition is to believe. Is John then preaching a half gospel or a false gospel? Are you going to tell him that in heaven? It seems as if some lordship people would. And then I like to, I would maybe question them because one of the things they often accuse us of is easy believism. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Because it wasn't easy for me to believe. I think what you mean is simple believism, isn't it? It is simple to believe. Simple means one, singular. Easy means uh, without effort, no struggle. There's a difference between simple and easy. It's simple to believe, but it's not easy. It's not easy to believe in somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, who claimed to be God, who claimed to rise from the dead, who said that what he did will cover my sins today. It's not easy for me to believe. That I, if I just place my faith in him, I'll, I'll be cleansed, I'll become a child of God, I'll have an eternity in heaven. That's not easy. But it is simple, because it just says believe. So belief, easy believes that believism is really a misnomer, in my opinion. And I would like to point that out to them. And then finally, another question we could ask our Lordship Salvation uh, friends is, um, they like to talk about a costly grace. Grace has to cost us something. Uh, we or we just can't uh, believe because that wouldn't. I think that they're saying is that wouldn't show respect or proper respect for Jesus Christ who died for us and paid 
high cost for us. The problem with the term costly grace is my biblical understanding of grace is that grace essentially means what? Yeah, it's God's favor. It's from the word gift. That's what it's from. We can't in any way from uh, the linguistics get any idea of a cost attached to it. Biblical understanding of grace is Romans 11.6, that it's not mixed in any way with works, and when it does, it ceases to be grace, or Romans 4.5. And so it excludes the merit from grace. That's Romans 4.5. It becomes the debt. God doesn't pay debts. He gives gifts. So what in the world is costly grace? I think there's confusion about who pays the cost. They're on track about thinking that there's a high cost for our salvation. But the problem is they're attaching it to us, but the cost was paid by Christ. And that's what the word redemption means, right? Redemption speaks of cost. It means to purchase. And so in Romans 3.24, when it says we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Free to us because it was costly to Christ. In no way is it costly to us because the price has been paid. In fact, if we insist that we have to pay a price, what are we doing? We're denigrating the price that Christ has paid. It's not good enough. The Son of God didn't pay the price for us. Do we really want to say that? I don't think so. I think what they're trying to say would be what they're trying to say is that we shouldn't live licentiously. There needs to be a costly grace. There's there's certain expectations of us. I don't have a problem if you say it that way, but you know the Bible talks in different terminology. It doesn't talk about costly grace because that's just contradictory language. What the Bible talks about is receiving it in vain. It talks about setting aside God's grace. It talks about falling from God's grace. It talks about insulting the spirit of grace. It talks about falling short of grace in Hebrews 12. That's the biblical language. It doesn't use the confusing terminology of costly grace. Well, in my opinion, Lordship Salvation raises more questions than it answers. In fact, in my opinion, Lordship Salvation raises questions it can't answer. And really what happens is the cure kills the patient. Because what they're trying to do is produce godly living in people. But what they do essentially is undermine the assurance that helps us to grow in Christ. So the cure that they propose will only kill the patient. I don't think that Lordship View stands up to the test of Scripture, and when we, we get them and their noses in the Bible, and, uh, and the verses, again, are, are, are for all of these, or in my book, uh, get their noses in the Bible to deal with the text instead of what they've heard from somebody else or some system of theology that they've extrapolated in their minds or by their theology. Uh, I, I think that, that we have good chance of winning that mushy middle who have not really thought it through and who are being inconsistent. Godly living is the result of someone who's experienced the grace of God and has been motivated out of a sense of gratitude and love to live their life for God is a big thank you note. And I think that the Lordship Salvation people really want to do that. At least that big middle really wants to do that. And we can help them be free to do that. Again, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God will perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website, 
at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.